made a movie or two right yeah yeah yep okay uh legally we have to say yes fair fair i I don't want to know what the penalties for that level of perjury would be (laughs) you did you swore in the bible right uh the satanic bible yeah perfect okay so what in your eyes was the most ridiculous thing that we ever did in production you know what's what's messed up is when I was talking to Scott the other day, he asked me the exact same thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, serendipity. Um, we had the same answer. Oh? Um, do you remember that time that we went into the Fort Pitt, Pitt Tunnel? You mean the Squirrel Hill Tunnel, and that's yeah. also my answer. <laughs> yeah. So, really quick, um, we shot a scene where there's a shootout between a car and a minivan. Yes. And we wanted to do this in the Squirrel Hill Tunnel. And we wanted to have the van door open, like slide open. Well, there's like sliding doors. As, as though, as though there were a gunner there with like a like a machine Correct. gun, uh, like a fifty not, cal. Uh, not just any gunner, Michael Paradise. It was one Michael Paradise. Uh, what a guy! Hell of a guy. <laughs> I, I miss Mike. Um, <laughs> and in order to do that, as I'm gonna, I can't emphasize the finger quotes enough, but <laughs> safely. Uh, there are so many scare quotes on that word that I I see them visibly, but that might just be trauma. The only part of this I remember is the part that's on screen. All of it <laughs> has been like shoved into some some deep recess of of trauma. Uh, but we had two cars in the in the front, and two cars in the back, and two cars in the middle. So that's three sets of vehicles. Mm-hmm. The set in the middle was the. I guess actor cars. Yes, that yeah, that uh, was where the actual action was taking place. The two in front were there to. I don't even know why they were there. I, actually, you know what? I think we ended I, up putting actually, two in back. I think the original plan was two in front, two in back, but I think we ended up going four in back. Yeah, to more effectively block any oncoming traffic yeah. from interfering with we the shot. We created a wall like we're the president coming to town. So yeah, so we had this barricade of four cars that were like. What, your girlfriend at the time? Yeah. Uh, and then, like, other cast and crew in their cars going, like, 10 miles an hour yeah. <laughs> on the parkway east <laughs> going through the tunnel um, as we went <laughs> mildly faster, maybe 15 miles an yeah, hour. Yeah, yeah. And shot this thing trying to keep these two vehicles as 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 even as possible to get the shot right. You know what Scott reminded me of is that – so the, the issue really came when the middle of the fucking night became the beginning of the fucking morning. When we could see, like, the incoming morning work rush. Yeah. <laughs> we just uh, barely beat that as well. I don't, well, we didn't really beat it. We just kind of got nipped in the by, butt by it. By, but... by beat it, I mean definitely held it up and there were people uh, honking. Oh, I've – seen i've never seen rage on a face like that in my <laughs> life. i i am still astounded that we got through that without once getting pulled over or even questioned we should have been arrested we should have been arrested um a hundred percent scott reminded me that earlier that night 
we were down in the strip district shooting car fuckery there as well. Yes. Yeah. You had me posted up on a corner in like a high vis <laughs> yeah. vest watching, like watching as you kept rounding this corner for continuity's sake. Yeah. And just like alerting you via walkie talkie, like, hey, there's a cop behind you. Yeah. Hey, that cop's still behind you. Yeah. <laughs> like just getting followed over and over and over again because we picked the sketchiest part of the strip district, which was the, the point. But uh, and then to end the day and end the shoot yep. entirely, um, we had to throw a cell phone in the traffic to make it look like it had been tossed <laughs> out of a, a car window. And we we're standing along B- Bigelow <laughs> Boulevard. If you're familiar with Pittsburgh, we were in that park where like the big yellow like French fry stack yeah. statue is, and. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, Alka She is now available to watch on Vimeo. Yes. Uh, potentially YouTube soon, if I'm not mistaken. Soon, right? yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was one of your producers on this. Yes. I want you to imagine what possible hell could I have personally wrought to make that shoot worse? Ooh. Um, well, if you hadn't brought snacks, that would have been a pretty big disaster. That would have been a pretty big disaster. Um, if you were late, if you didn't tell us that there was a cop behind us, uh... That's a, that's a good one. If I had just, like, tried to milk the cop for, like, a, sh- like a shot that I thought yeah. would be a cool idea or something. It would be great if they got pulled over. That was, like, flashing lights would be amazing. <laughs> and they would have been. Uh, it just would have ended the shoot. Oh, yeah. Uh, that one really good shot. Um... <laughs> I, I suppose if you see the weird thing is we're not union, so there's nothing stopping me from like murdering you and putting you in a closet. I mean, technically, <laughs> Where is... no, that, that, that's not illegal. No, it's just, in you, you, just have to, you have to be in a union to not get murdered. Oh, God damn it! It's legal otherwise. You got to pay your dues. I'm amazed I've lasted this long. Yeah, right. It's it's in the fine print. Most people don't know that. Whereas I feel like where you're headed with this. Um, I would not be able to murder this producer and put him in the closet for the duration of the, the filming. I'd pay good money to see you try. I, I forgot to look up this. Person. Oh, you didn't look up I, a picture no, of him. No, do was, you want to do that real quick? Kind of do, yeah. Okay, yeah. Go ahead and look up a picture of, of, of um, this man real quick. It's it's weird that he doesn't look that bad. Oh, looks are so deceiving, he, Jack. He, he looks kind of friendly. He looks like somebody's like um, derpy uncle. Although I am seeing him with the beard in the seventies, and he's a little bit more intimidating. Oh, he's a little bit more intimidating then. That's for sure. Um, he's 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 aged into a, a kindly looking man. Yes. I'll give him that. Looking back through his history, oh well, there's a headline that says, "I am the Trump of Hollywood." We're gonna get to that. Okay, well, I'm just gonna move <laughs> right past that to uh, yeah, his disco era. I think disco era is the one that I'm least comfortable with. Yeah, so mostly because I am the schmuck that I am and am not John Peters, there's no way I could wreak the kind of havoc that this man could wreak. You're not the Donald Trump anything. of indie producers? No, it <laughs> just so happens I'm not. And if I was, I would demand that you kill me and throw me into a closet somewhere <laughs> or leave my body somewhere to leave a fun message. Huh. So this this man, John Peters, is a big is probably the biggest reason that we are here doing what we're doing today so thank you for joining us everyone welcome to derazzled's second unit uh, as we continue our journey into development hell i am your host joe nealis and with me as always is also host jack culbertson Hiya. uh you might be familiar with how we take award-winning worst films and fix them 
or from the last couple of second unit episodes, you might be aware of how we dig into what happened to films that never got to happen. And today we are talking about one of the most infamous ones, I would say. And uh, requested. And one of the most requested. We've had a lot of people ask us to do this, and here we are. Uh, today we take a deep dive into the murky ocean that is Superman Lives. Oh boy. Before we before we officially get started, I want to acknowledge some of the sources going into this. First, most obviously, is the uh, 2015 documentary, uh, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened, by John Schnapp. The uh, book that I've been using for some of these episodes, uh, The Greatest Sci-Fi Stories Never Made, by David Hughes, from 2008, uh, An Evening with Kevin Smith, in 2002. The Hollywood Reporter article, I Am the Trump of Hollywood, The Reclusive and Outrageous John Peters is Still Rich, Really Rich, <laughs> from 2017. Uh, the Wild Career of John Peters and Bradley Cooper's Character in Licorice Pizza, from uh, from Insider, in, to, in 2021. Uh, Superman Lives by Kevin Smith and Superman Lives by Dan Gilroy. The audio drama versions of these scripts what? by the po- yes that's the surprise i was i was telling you that i found that i didn't tell actually tell you about yet by the podcast new verse creative uh done by tim maxwell back in 2021 so thank you tim maxwell for that that was very helpful to me in the wow yeah i actually got to listen to this shit uh and of course wikipedia and imdb uh for other various stats and whatnot throughout jack what do you know about superman uh you know quite a bit Hit me with it. I know. I know you know more than I do about the character of Superman. Yeah, I mean, I know the basics about. Superman. Okay, do you want this to be a four-parter? <laughs> I'll. I, I okay. mean, okay. You well, got, you, can you clean up the blood? <laughs> <laughs> I just imagined your body just starts sweating blood. Yeah, that's what I meant. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Superman is a character created by uh, Siegel and. Uh, Siegel and Schuster, yes, I think were the names. They were two Jewish creators who wanted to create a character to kind of defend the downtrodden. Um, I just learned this today, but apparently one of the fellas' fathers was killed in a shootout. Oh, not a shootout. Uh, he was shot. He wasn't like Old West style. Yeah, that's different. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's more that's less um, of a shootout and more of a shooting. People theorized that. Creating a character that's immune to bullets might have been, you know, he might have been influenced by that incident. Fair. Um, I think that makes a world of sense. Yeah. There is uh, a worlds of sense. Going within, like, the actual fictional history of the character, there's this child born to a scientist on the planet Krypton. It was going to go boom. So, like, hey, kid, we're going to put you in a rocket and just shoot you towards this planet. We picked Earth. There are a lot of planets, but we picked that one for reasons. I think it's because he gets his energy from the yellow sun, our yellow sun. I, I'm not entirely sure if if uh, if his parents knew that, but that is what ended up happening. He was a scientist. I'm just going to say, sure. Fair. Because uh, what other reason would you've picked Earth over any of the other awesome planets? Anyway, he crash lands in Kansas where he's found by John and Martha um, Kent, Kent, <laughs> who raised him in Smallville to be a good boy, to be a good boy. He eventually leaves for Metropolis, where he becomes a reporter at the Daily Planet, meeting his future wife, Lois Lane, and best pal, Jimmy Olsen. Yes. Uh, Superman's good friend, Jimmy Olsen. 
who's a rascally little redhead scamp <laughs> photographer. Sometimes. 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 Which we'll also get into. Oh, God. Okay. Um, <laughs> because comics are the way the comics are, the characters have changed and moved around and their origins have been warped. Uh, it'll probably be different again by the time this comes out. I, I mean, honestly. There have been several movies, which obviously we're going to talk about. There have been. Well, we're, uh, we're not going to talk about all of them because uh, there's, I mean, like you said, this this character's been along for a very long time. 30s, I think. Yeah, yeah it was 1930s. Um, I don't think 38 that was, the, about right. was the official founding or founding uh, <laughs> debut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, it, so there's been a lot go- that has gone on with Superman from comic strips to actual comic books to radio shows, TV shows and feature length films. Most notably, most famously, the uh, Richard Donner films uh, of the of 1978 and 1980 starring Christopher Reeve. Still held up as like the gold standard of Superman on the big screen, if I'm not and mistaken. Superhero movies in general. For and a superhero long time. movies in general. They're fucking good. Yeah, it's been a while since I've watched them, but no, I mean, they're they're pretty good. Dick Donner done good. Yeah. Just absolutely stellar films. At least for the first two. Well, he only did the first two. That's true. Well, he well, actually, he only did the first he did one the first and a half. One and a half. <laughs> he did the first one and a half. And then got to redo the second one later because he had all the footage. So he got to do one and a half plus a half. Yes. Yeah. Right. Just, just <laughs> got to go back and correct that half. Yeah. But he, he had nothing to do with Superman 3 or Superman 4. The Quest for Peace. The Quest for Peace. Yes. Which, that's where I want to start our story. Because that was the state of Superman in cinema before we get to what we're really going to be digging into today. Yes. So, Superman, The Quest for Peace, came out when I was a wee one-year-old in 1987. Do you know the Rotten Tomatoes score for uh, for Superman? Is it 12? Uh, it's uh, You're close. 16. Sixteen's so, the audience score. Okay. The, uh, the, the critics' tomato meter is 10%. Okay, uh, I've watched a total of six minutes of this movie, and that's all I could stomach. Oh my god! Uh, what about IMDb? Oof, I'm gonna go with a four point two, three point seven. Okay, not bad, not bad. You're within within half a yeah. point there. Uh, so this is the fourth film featuring Christopher Reeve as Superman. Reeve reprised this role because he liked the script's message regarding nuclear weapons. He was very vocal anti-nuclear armament advocate uh, back in the back in the 70s and 80s. Noble intentions. Yep. Uh, Margot Kidder returned as Lois Lane and Gene Hackman returned as Lex Luthor, among many other actors from throughout the film series. Uh, I don't have written down offhand who played was it the Atomic Man it doesn't or, or Adam Man or yeah, whatever the hell his name was. He's best left forgotten. Best left forgotten, I agree. So... Canon Films decided to cut the film's budget, Fuck. Uh, <laughs> impacting the special effects and requiring some severe editing, which overall hurt the production and resulted in the worst performing entry in the Superman film series. Uh, it was not a massive financial failure, but it only pulled in about $15 million on a $17 million budget. Okay. So did not earn back its money. No, it got close. Do you know that they gave Superman the extra power of reverse vision because they couldn't afford him running fast sweet jesus yeah the uh great wall of china is wrecked in a scene and they were gonna have him like super speed fix it but they're like oops no money uh, we'll just play it in reverse <laughs> thanks with this reverse vision thanks canon 
Jesus oh, Christ. While there was some praise for the cast themselves, uh, the writing and effects were largely panned, and the whole thing was seen by a, by some as just a giant cash grab. Sure. So with this and the critical failures of Superman 3, which I will remind you is the one with Richard Pryor, <laughs> that features the rounding error mentioned in Office Space. It is sure all, does. It's all about compound interest. Yeah. And it's somehow the campiest entry. <laughs> It also has two Razzie noms. It does have a couple of Razzie noms. Richard Pryor was nominated, and I think the score. Well, that's or, a shame. or one of the songs or something like that. I don't know. Okay. Okay. But uh, because of those things, Warner Brothers decided to end the series uh, and put Superman to bed for a little while. After, uh, after waning popularity in the wake of Superman 4 and the undeniable smash hit that was Tim Burton's Batman films... Uh, DC took a big swing to restore the Man of Steel's popularity. They were going to kill him off. DC's Death of Superman story arc ran from December 1992 through October 1993 as a massive crossover event, including just about every Superman-related solo book, the Justice League, and Green Lantern. The actual death took place in Superman number 75, and that sold over 6 million copies. People believed at the time that it would have a great resale value that it was going to be worth something many years that it was oh, it was going I to do not doubt that at all uh, pay for their kids future co- college i doubt that it was going to make that much it it is worth less than toilet paper now oh my god really it's worth nothing holy fuck yeah that's astounding they printed so many copies that it's like you could you know line your house with it that's true. I mean, they did, I think, like, the following week they put out a second run, like, like real quick. Well, I mean... When, when you're selling that many, like, how do you not? The... It's kind of like when they they made X-Men number one with Jim Lee and, I think, Claremont. Yeah. It was, like, the best-selling comic book of all time for a while. And you, you can't walk into a comic store without tripping over an issue because <laughs> there's just so many. That's fair. Yeah. And everybody uh, bought ten of them. <laughs> it's going to be worth something someday. What? Free wallpaper. Free free wallpaper. (laughs) Free really cool wallpaper. Jim Lee drew it. (laughs) Following storylines, Funeral for a Friend, uh, A World Without Superman, and Reign of the Supermen, I believe you said it was, uh, primed audiences for a triumphant return of the Cape Crusader, which inevitably did come in the series Superman Reborn. Uh, Along with Superman's return to the top of comics, Warner Brothers also launched the TV series Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman on ABC in 1993. Uh, and Superman the Animated Series uh, on Kids WB in 1996. Uh, and that one did eventually lead to the lauded Justice League Animated Series in 2001. Tim Daly voicing Superman. Yes. Um, great performance. Oh, yeah. No, he's fantastic. He was also in a uh, Stephen King miniseries, which was popular in the 90s, to have a bunch of Stephen King stuff, I think, called yeah. the The Really Bad Storm. That's it. It's it's something like a not great storm, (laughs) the (laughs) no good, very bad storm, which it has all the Stephen King things you would expect. Downright crummy storm, small New England island where bad things happen and idiots argue (laughs) in a town hall and evil wizards occur. Yeah, that's a Stephen King. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, Um, that sounds like something he crapped out on a Tuesday. It's it's (laughs) bad, but very enjoyable, partially because. You could actually see Tim Daly's face. I mean, that's pretty cool. And he's the main character. He's Neat. the he's the sheriff because again, Stephen King. 
Yes. Lois Clark, The New Adventures of Superman was my introduction to Superman, pretty much. No shit, really? Yeah. Yeah, I used to watch... Very not appropriate for children. No, it was not a kid's show. Uh, all of that shit went over my head. And I, well, yeah. I've, um, I, we, we've, talk, we've talked about, we've talked about yeah. you and your fascination with Batman Returns. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Lois was very pretty. Yeah. Everyone wants to fuck Clark. Now I get it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I wish I didn't know what I know about Dean Cain now, but you know, he was a good looking guy back in the day. I don't know anything about Dean Cain. Oh, he's a raging right wing conservative. Oh, God damn yeah. it. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a bummer. But I want to say that they wanted in the comics to originally have Lois and Clark get married. Yeah. And the reason they couldn't because the show wanted to do that. And they're like, well, we need to build up to it. And like, we don't want to have these two things overlap. So in the comics, they said, okay, well, we will just kill him off first for a while. We'll just do that because they had. Oh, so that was part of the strategy then yeah. was killing him off in the comics to allow the buildup to take place on the show. Correct. So Holy they fuck. would have time on the show to marry Lois and Clark. And then by the time Superman had returned from the dead, that would be done on the show and it would be their turn to have them get married, which they did. Huh. Yeah. Neat. Yeah. If you like camp, go find Lois and Clark. It is the campiest, cheesiest shit. It is delicious. I'm going to have to find that then. Yeah. That sounds like a good time. But yeah, no, the show was a hit for quite for quite a while. Uh, and with that new success came push for a return to the big screen. Now, Jack, when did you first hear the story of Superman Lives or a story of Superman Lives? Uh, that would be 2005. In uh, Mr. <laughs> I said Mr. Stanislavski, but that's not it. <laughs> I'm, I'm blanking on the name, which is terrible because it was actually my ex-girlfriend's uncle. Oh, so no. that means I'm forgetting. Stanek. That's what it was. We okay. got there eventually. Mr. Stanek. Not Mr. Mr. Stanislavski. <laughs> uh, in his computer lab, I read about Kevin Smith telling the story. That's what I was getting to. So that's how I heard about this originally as well. I was a massive Kevin Smith fan in high school. And when my friends told me, like, oh, he does, like, a one-man show type thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's a fucking riot. You need to watch this. So I got my hands on uh, his 2002 DVD, An Evening with Kevin Smith. And that is that was the first that I had heard about this, this uh, entire endeavor. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, I'm going to recap the story here. So, after the script for Chasing Amy had been had been making the rounds in 96, uh, Smith's skills as a writer were finally being recognized. Uh, I think the way he put it was people saw it and were like, oh, the fucker actually can write. With offers being made for him to rewrite work at a variety of studios, and Warner Brothers was among those studios. Yeah, so he's brought in to see what projects he could possibly rewrite, and there were a couple that were offered to him, one of which I... I uh, and morbidly curious about because is Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian. Oh shit! He was tied to that for a second. He well, he was potentially offered to rewrite it. So somebody had written this script uh, at some yeah, point. Yeah, it exists. And his his immediate reaction was like, "Didn't we say everything we needed to say with the first Beetlejuice?" Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and apparently, like they were like, "No, we've been trying to crack Beetlejuice for years." It's like, no, I think Burton got it and won. Yeah, that's the reason you can't crack it. You already did. Yeah. Uh, if anybody else trying to do that's just not going to be able to do it well. Right. But then in the conversation, they mentioned, well, we do have the Superman script kicking around. And Kevin Smith's comic book nerd ears perk up and he's going, Superman? Right. And in his words, in the DVD anyway, or whose dick do I have to suck to get that job? Uh-huh. 
I think his actual question was, oh, well, would that be available? Because, you know, he wanted a job. <laughs> right, right. And they didn't want to give him the job right then. It was like, no, there's a lot There's a lot of stuff you have to go through to be able to get that one. We can't just offer that to you right Not here. Not like Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. Not like Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. We'll, we'll offer that to any yokel on the street. <laughs> we just, just anyone can crack this movie, please. <laughs> My kids are such failures. I keep asking them. <laughs> But they, they do give him a copy of this script to go and read. Uh, and it's the, uh, as, as we're going to cover later on, it's the second draft of the script that is, that, uh, that's out there. And he reads over it and he comes back and says, this is terrible. This is absolutely <laughs> yeah. awful. Did, did like your cousin write this? Did you pay for this? Can you get the money back? Like what happens? They're like, okay, uh, well, thanks. We'll we'll call you and let you know if there's any work. So uh-huh. he, he goes off and he go and he goes back to the the apartment he's staying in, in L.A. and he calls his friend Walt Flanagan, right? Uh, and and starts you know celebrating like ah, I just told I just told Warner Brothers or Superman's script sucks, <laughs> Jersey what up? And, yeah. And Walt is like, well, did, did you offer to write a better one? And he's like, ah, yeah, I, fuck, <laughs> no, I didn't think of this. So. You know, he's like starting to kick himself, but then the next day he gets a call back saying, Hey, they want to meet with you at Warner Brothers again. And he goes and he meets with the same person he talked to, and there's another guy there as well. And he goes, okay. and the first guy goes, Tell him what you told me yesterday. So he goes through like the same five minute spiel about how bad this movie is, uh-huh. and they send him on his way. And this happens a few more times. Like he keeps getting called back in to retell the same story to more and more people until he's sitting in front of the board of Warner Brothers. <laughs> this is wild. And he's finally, like, face-to-face with just, like, this room full of people, including Lorenzo de Bonaventura, who is, like, the man in charge okay. at, this, at this point for project development. Had this question not getting asked, I'm sure he would have ended up at the very top and talking to Terry Sewell or whatever the hell his name is. <laughs> sure. But finally, de Bonaventura asks him, okay, well, what would you do differently? Right. So he finally gets a chance to throw some ideas out there and like show, like give them some examples of stuff that would actually potentially work differently and build off of what was already there. And so they said, okay, that sounds pretty good. Now we're interested, but you have to go and meet with the producer and say, okay, who's the producer? That's John Peters. So you're going to go to his, his place, his, you know, here's his address. You can go and you'll talk to him, you know, see if, see if this is a go. So he goes up to, uh, Peters palatial estate. Right. And talks with him, and he starts, you know, giving him his pitch, trying to see, trying to gauge what he's th- what he's thinking, see if there, see if this is something that's going to work. And Peters tells Smith after he's done, he says, "You know why we're going to do a good job on Superman? Because you and me, we get Superman. You know why? Because we're from the streets." So okay. Kevin Smith notes at this point that he grew up in the New Jersey suburbs. And jokes that he has never seen a black man until he was about 28. (laughs) And at this point, he he also notes that John Peters got his start in Hollywood as Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. That makes so much sense. All those pictures of the 70s with him hanging on her. Yes. And his goofy ass, but very stylish for the time, hairdo. Yes. Yeah. He's on top of the hairstyles of the time. We'll get more into them later. Fantastic. yeah, but at, at the time, he's like, no, but we are like the furthest from the streets <laughs> right. that we could possibly get, which I also want to put a pin in. We'll get into a little bit more detail about that later. Okay. I, one really quick statement. Yes. Neither is Superman. Neither is Superman. Superman is also not from the Superman streets. Superman is also not from he's, the streets. He's from Kansas? Well, yeah. You know. 
He grew up in Kansas. I, I mean, just as just as Kevin Smith grew up on a street, I'm sure. The, I'm sure that <laughs> right. a young Clark Kent saw a street here or there, eventually. Yeah, the one stoplight. Yeah, town one of, of those. <laughs> <laughs> so Smith also claims that Peters immediately told him who he wanted to cast as Superman. Uh huh. I want you to guess. What year is this? This is '96. Okay. Costner. No, not Costner. Okay. Sean Penn. Fuck. He wants to cast Sean fuck? Penn, uh, to, to which Kevin Smith looks at him and goes, Spicoli? What? Peter's rationale for this. Uh-huh. Did you see Dead Man Walking? Mm. Well, look in his eyes in that movie. He has the eyes of a violent caged animal, of a fucking killer. That's not Superman. That's not Superman! <laughs> In what universe is that a descriptor for Superman? Only the one where the Nazis win. Basically, it's like just just hearing this bit, I immediately assume that John Peters is the kind of guy that watches the boys and is like, Homelander's fucking great. Uh, this guy this guy makes guy, so much sense. So he ends up he ends up saying, Okay, I want to go forward with this, I want to work with you, but there's three things. I have three okay. things that I that I need you to do, three directives. Yeah, I don't want to see him in that suit. Which he, uh, in his eyes, the the suit was uh, too much of a homophobic slur. I was like, he's going to say something awful. Here, he said he okay. he uses he uses an f slur uh, to refer to the suit. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I don't want to see him fly. He always looks stupid when he flies in the movies. Oh, no, he looks. Sorry, guy. And he has to fight a giant spider in the third act. I can make one of the three of those things work. <laughs> So I do want to note real quick, this might sound familiar because we talked about it briefly when we did our very first episode on Wild Wild West. Just for the sake of accuracy, I mistakenly said that Kevin Smith said that John Peters said that he wanted a giant mechanical spider. He just said giant spider. That's it. It did not have to be mechanical. It just ended up that way in Wild Wild West. And I was pretty certain that Toy Man was involved. Right, but he's not. But he's not. We'll get into who all is involved, but which you 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 might not be that surprised who all is involved, but you know, we'll get there. Smith is obviously incredulous at these at these demands, because I mean the suit, the flight, like those those are big deals for Superman. Like they given Superman didn't always fly, but at that point in time, he could jump it was real in, high. Yeah, he could jump real high, it may as well fly. Yeah. And at that point in time, he habitually flew. So, how do you do these things? The spider, he had, he had to ask, why a spider? And so, Peter said, well, do you right. know anything about spiders? Uh, and he said that they're the fiercest killers in the insect kingdom. I also don't think that's true, John. It's probably not. Also, they're not insects. They're arachnids. <laughs> they, might be one of the, they might be one of the fiercest killers of insects. But, you know, I'm not going to get pedantic with this guy for reasons you'll see later. So the, the whole reason he wanted this is because he wanted a King Kong moment. He had a vivid memory okay. for, of watching the old King Kong film as a kid and seeing those doors open and reveal the great ape. Sure. And he wanted that with the spider. I don't know why he wanted it with is a spider. The movie about a spider? Sure. No, it's about <laughs> Superman. Is Superman a spider? Wait a minute. Hold on. Uh, no, I don't. I'm, you know that there's a universe out there somewhere where Spider-Man, spider, <laughs> super spider... <laughs> Universe collapsing. Spider-Man into the dark, or turn off the dark, (laughs) (laughs) 2.5. 
I hate everything about this. All right, so Smith comes back to the studio, and they say, okay, Peters is in. He wants you on. We're going to move forward with this. Did he bring up the spider? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, they, he brought up the spider. Did he talk to you guys about the spider? He says, every fucking day with the spider. Look, just appease him. Make it happen. Just please, for the love of God, do not call it a spider. So Smith comes up with a workaround and decides to call it a Thanagarian snare beast. God damn it. Uh, I yeah, thought, this this all is in character for all of the people involved. It is, yeah. So uh, Smith notes in the uh, in the documentary uh, Death of Superman Lives What Happened uh, by one John Schnapp, uh, who, rest in peace. Rest in peace. Yeah, he died in 2018. A uh, documentary came out in 2015. He notes in there that he got this from Hawkman, because Hawkman's homeworld is Thanagar. Right, yeah. I was like, that sounds so, familiar. Yeah, so, because nerd. Right. Kevin Smith's a giant fucking nerd. Smith is then told to turn in an outline, and they'll get the process going from there. So keep in mind, at this point in, in Kevin Smith's career, he has basically written Clerks, Mallrats, Chasing Amy, and I think Vulgar. It's like a clown of clown movie or something. I've not actually seen it. I've not. I've I've seen the image because yeah. that was his studio icon for me. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah that clown. Gross. Yeah, uh, yeah. He has a movie. I wonder. Ew, I wonder <laughs> if uh, hashtag justice for clowns. Hashtag clowns are not gross. No. <laughs> um, I'm making it a thing. I I'm surprised you didn't earlier. Honestly. Uh, yeah, it's weird. Um, <laughs> is had he written? The Bionic Man script at this point? Yes, this is okay. post-Bionic Man. Okay. So he has some spec scripts floating around. Yes. Gotcha. But he doesn't know what an outline is. No. <laughs> no. Like, uh, very famously, he turned in 80 pages of mostly dialogue. <laughs> Relatable. Because that's what Kevin Smith does best, is dialogue. Right. You know, especially at that point in his career. That is what he was known for. So he turns this in, to which everyone's like, what the... What, what is this? You turn in 80 pages. He's like, yeah, that's the outline. I go, Kevin, an outline's like four pages max. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's an outline. I did it. You did a first draft. More or less. Yeah. Like he, he wrote like, he wrote like over half of a goddamn oh screenplay. God. So his, his next task is to go back to Peters and read him the script. Okay. So Kevin is like a little bit bewildered by this. It's like, what do you want me to tuck him in afterwards? This is a nighttime story. And <laughs> right. they're like, no, we're serious. You, you have to go up there and read him the script. So he goes back to Peter's Manor, sits down, and Peter's lays back on his couch and does director hands up at the ceiling to like to like <laughs> create the screen that's in his mind right, right. and visualize what's happening. Um, so Kevin starts reading, and he just keeps getting he keeps getting interrupted with like bizarre questions over and over again. Like, who's Kal El? Fuck. Why is he Kal El? Okay. Because you know Kevin Smith isn't just going to call him Superman the entire time. He's right. He, he you know shakes it up with Kal El or Man of Tomorrow, Man of Steel, Clark right, Kent, so right. on and so forth. He also uh, uh, Peters also notes that like. You know, like, like, like I'm seeing some good stuff here, but like there's too much of a lull. Like we need an action beat like every 10 God pages. Yeah. So he starts suggesting like just fights to happen at, at places. Most notably, when Brainiac goes to uh, to the Fortress of Solitude, he just, he suggests that he starts getting into a fight with Superman's soldiers or guards. Sure. It's like, why would Superman have guards? He's fucking Superman. He, he does actually have. They're more like robot maids well that's that's robots though that's and that's different they'll, they'll attack if like superman's away they'll 
God damn it, you're making me argue for John Peters. <laughs> yeah, no, don't do that. <laughs> so the the other suggestion, because you have Fortress of Solitude, obviously right. there's not going to be like actual guards up there. The yeah. other suggestion he has is, well, what if he gets into a fight with like some polar bears? Like, you want me to write a script where Brainiac gets into a fucking fight with polar bears? They are pretty vicious. Well, he's, well he said, do you know anything about polar bears? Says they're the <laughs> most vicious killers in the animal kingdom. And he was actually right about that He's one. He's actually right about that one, but <laughs> he takes this advice and he starts thinking, okay, well, apparently he's just got some like preconceived ideas that have been ordained by the studio. I'm just going to figure out a way to make this happen. It's obviously not going to be my dream script, but sure. you know, right. I, I really want to write Superman. Let's do this. He's playing the game. He's playing the game. Exactly. He, want, I, he wants the job. Can I ask now what John Peters has done up to this point? Not yet. Okay. Uh, we're, we're, we're getting close to there, though. Right around this time now, uh, Smith has Chasing Amy actually premiere. Okay. And he invites Peters along, because at this point, he's pretty sure nobody at the studio is actually familiar with his work. Uh, <laughs> either that or somebody watched the whole Kryptonite <laughs> right. condom discussion from Mallrats and was like, this motherfucker knows his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, on on the one hand... Kinda. Yeah. But on the other hand... That shouldn't be your resume. That shouldn't be your resume for something like this or anything. But he... So Peters agrees to go and see the movie. And afterward, he says it was uh, interesting. It was an interesting flick, which Kevin takes to mean he just didn't like it at all. Right. But he really liked Dwight Ewell's performance as Hooper X. Jesus Christ, it's been so long since I've watched Chasing Amy. the The way that Peters put it was like, I really like that gay black guy. Okay, that's the way he put it. So Kevin's like, "Yeah, Dwight, he's hilarious. He's he's you know, he's amazing. I'm really glad we had him." He said that, and Peter says, "That's what we need in our movie." Um. So okay. so, Ke- so Kevin's first inclination is, "Oh, you want to cast Dwight in the movie? I'm sure he'd love to. That'd be great." He says, "No, no, no, no. We just need that voice. We need that voice in something. Like maybe in like a robot or something. Can you give like Brainiac <laughs> or somebody like a robot friend that has that voice?" And it's like you would. You want a gay black man voice in a in a robot? And he said, "Yeah, it's what, that's what this film needs. It's like a gay R two D two." You got the wrong one, but that's, yeah. <laughs> they they both are. You know it. Uh, but uh, of course, this is timely because the re releases of Star Wars are appearing in theaters at this point. So not yeah. only does he want a gay R two D two, he's also obsessed with having a Chewbacca. Fuck. He literally suggests. Having like a a dog, like a little dog companion for Brainiac or for somebody else in the film, was like, you want me? What? Why? You want crypto? You want? He could have had crypto. Could have had crypto. Crypto. crypto, There's at least rationale for crypto, but he never brings up crypto because you might have guessed he doesn't know fuck about Superman. There was also a super horse. No, Supergirls though. I hated it. I I I would (laughs) say I'm shocked you even brought it up. (laughs) That this is progress for you. Yeah. It's exposure therapy. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, they're starting to talk to directors and trying to figure out what happens there. And the first person that either Peters or Smith thinks of is Tim Burton. Just just thinking back to Batman and what he did for and what he did for that. Now, so Tim Burton does end up getting brought on, as everybody knows. There were some other steps that led that, you know, sure. in the lead up to that, but we'll get into that later. Uh, so Tim Burton does come on, and Smith is pumped. He wants to work with Tim Burton so badly. They do not have the same vibe. No. Well, that they don't have the same vibe, and Tim Burton reads his script, signs on to the movie, and then says, I want to bring in my own guys. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Makes perfect sense. Yeah. So he, so he ends up saying, we will not use this script. 
Kevin Smith gets let go. And that is essentially the end of that until Kevin Smith goes into a movie theater a few years later to see Wild Wild West <laughs> and sees that giant mechanical spider. Right. So before we can really dig into Burton's crew and vision, we need to rewind a little bit. We have to take it back to better set the stage of how this even came to be to begin with, which means we have to explore where John Peters comes from and okay. what kind of man he is. Great. So I've been looking forward to this. Yes, this is, yeah, this it, you, it is arguable that John Peters is the main character of this entire fucking episode. Yeah. But we'll get into that after we take a quick break. Great. Welcome back. Jack, are you sure you're ready to jump into the 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 mess that is John Peters? I feel like since the beginning of this podcast, there's a couple of there's like a legion of of super villains <laughs> <laughs> to our to, to Hollywood and our podcast, and like Bruce Willis has been the face. True, but I feel like John Peters is more of the. He's not a Luther. He's not like, but like he could be a brainiac. He could be, honestly. Uh, he he's certainly way more of an actual villain than Bruce Willis is. Yeah, Bruce Willis is kind of he's turned heel in the other direction. I don't know my wrestling terms very well. Uh heels heels the villain. So he's turned face. Face face is is a good guy. Great. Yeah, kind of. I only watch the Beefy Boys slap every once in a while. It's been a long time. It's been a long time since I've seen that Beefy Boy slap. Anyway. So John Peters wanted to work in show business so, so badly from a very young age. Uh, he was an uncredited extra on the Ten Commandments, at, uh, which came out in 1956. And that just enamored him with the idea of being in this world and working in this industry. Acting clearly did not work out for him, uh, with the exception of one other appearance on uh, Shirley Temple's storybook in 1961. Okay. Uh, he played an ironmonger, if I remember this credit on Fantastic. IMDb correctly. As Smith mentioned, he got his start as a hairdresser to the stars, uh, with clientele that, of course, included Barbara Streisand, as well as jo uh, Jack Nicholson and several others. He was paying, he was charging about 100 bucks per haircut. Sweet. Not bad, especially in nineteen in uh, 1970s money. Yeah. Before he ever got to Hollywood, though, he left his family of hairdressers uh, to live in New York City for a little while, where he got by performing cosmetological services for sex workers. Huh. Uh, Peter's that movie? It, uh, honestly, where the fuck is that film? I, I would like to, I would like to know this story, but it's immediately going to be rated X because he was he he referred to his his duties as being a muff dyer. Those are the words he uses. Uh, he made sure that the sex workers' pubes matched their hair or outfits or pets or what have you. There was one example he specifically mentions uh, where he... It's a Steven Soderbergh film. <laughs> it's... It could be a Soderbergh film. Yeah. That's fair. Uh, but there's one example that he mentions where, uh, where there was a, a woman who had red hair, red hair, and a red dog. <laughs> Great. Yeah, and that I was like it. her, her pull, I guess. So... I immediately thought of uh, Elvira's poodle, which is oh man, white, black, and and pink, pink. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. I have nothing else to say. Uh, fair. We just leave it at that. Right. <laughs> Options. I'm ready so, this movie. Okay, so he, <laughs> so he ended up in a long-running affair with Barbara Streisand in 1973, despite already being married to actress Leslie Ann Warren at that point. Uh, he initiated this affair just by flat out telling Streisand what a great ass she has. 
Huh. Like, he was just walking behind her and was like, my God. And she's like, what are you looking at? And she's like, you have a great <laughs> ass. And that's it. My God. My mother of God. <laughs> this goes on for quite a while. His marriage with with Leslie Ann Warren ends up falling apart by 1975. Okay. Uh, Peters is notably, uh, in the present day, divorced four times over. and okay. And has one annulment because he was married to Pamela Anderson for 12 days in 2020. Uh, yeah, I, this is an audio medium, so you can't see the like stunned face. But I'm so, <laughs> can I hear that last sentence again? He also has an annulment because he was married to Pamela Anderson uh-huh. for twelve days in twenty twenty. Nope, none of it makes sense. No, it doesn't. That feels like word salad. It, it feels like a yeah, mad lib. Like what fucking awful mad lib of you, strong. No, this is a, these these are just the facts. I'm okay. just 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 telling you the facts here. So one of his biggest biggest accomplishments as a hairdresser was that he styled Barbara Streisand's wig for the film For Pete's Sake, 1974. However, those were not where all of his talents lied. And no, I'm not getting into a sex thing here. Okay. Streisand saw the creative side of Peters and thought he would do really well in other work. It, he could be he could potentially be a great producer, and he and she gave him uh, his foot in the door that way. First musically, by having him uh, produce her album Butterfly in 1974, and then stepping into the world of film for the second remake of A Star is Born, uh, the version starring okay. Streisand yeah. and Chris Christopherson. During production, and th- mind you, this is his first foray into producing. Right. Uh, he would regularly just voice random ideas, confront people, and threaten people with violence. Uh, He's nailing it. There's an entire book about him that came out at this at this stage relatively early in his career. Uh, it came out in 1997 called Hit and Run by uh, Kim Masters and Nancy Griffin, uh, one of whom, if I'm not mistaken, is like the senior editor-at-large at The Hollywood Reporter now. Okay. One of the things he did was pitch that he take over as the leading actor and as the director on this film. So he wanted to... Be Christofferson? He wanted to take over Christofferson's role and replace the director entirely. Okay. With himself. All right. First producing gig. Ambitious? Yeah. Thankfully, none of that happened. No, nobody listened to shit he had to say about that. No. It's like, oh, okay, okay, John. But The Star is Born was a massive success. Yes. So that convinced him to leave hairdressing and pursue film producing full time. Before we continue on with that journey, uh, I will note here that Peter's relationship with Streisand lasted 15 years, and he refers to her as the love of his life and claims he owes everything he has to her. They're still close as of 2017, the date of that interview he gave for The Hollywood Reporter. But at the time, he could not bring himself to tell her that he voted for Donald Trump because he knew she would stop talking to him. Huh. Does he know that Barbara Streisand can read? I don't know. Okay. I would assume yes, but also I wouldn't put anything past this guy. Right. Uh, He also notes that he voted for Obama twice, but he refers to Trump as brilliant. He literally uses the word brilliant. Mm. Okay. Sometime after this, Peters saw Richard Donner's Superman, and it blew him away. Peters followed A Star is Born with with a few different films, uh, most notably... Uh, Caddyshack, and an American Werewolf in London. Uh, But ultimately, he hit the big time after partnering with Peter Gruber, doing the film Flashdance in 1983, and securing the rights to a film adaptation 
of Batman. That's right. Peters was arguably far too hands-on with the production of Batman 1989. Oh, dear. Um, I'm excited. So Peters was one of the most vociferous people uh, behind the idea of casting Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne. Okay. Like, he, I, will, I will say, his ideas are not always bad. He's very passionate about his ideas. It's just that sometimes they're terrible. And he needs to stop. This right. one, though, this one, though, he was onto something. He largely based this on Keaton's performance in the movie Clean and Sober the previous year. Uh, I knew being a street fighter my whole life that you could gauge the toughness of your opponent by the look in their eyes. And Keaton had that look. An absolutely insane right. you want to get way. Nuts? Let's get nuts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dance with the devil in the pale moonlight. <laughs> so, yeah, it's an absolutely ridiculous way to gauge hiring an actor. But you know what? It worked. And also worth noting, nobody was happy about this outside of the production. What, Michael Keaton being yes. cast? Oh, yeah, people were pissed. Huge, huge backlash against Michael Keaton being cast in this role, uh, mostly because of the movie Mr. Mom. <laughs> right. Uh, he was mostly a comedic actor up to that point. Yes, very much so. But he proved he could do it. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, like after the fact, when he was getting nominated for awards on mm-hmm. Uh, whether it be for this or for other things, he mentioned it in one of his in one of his like acceptance speeches and was like, "Hey, by the way, to anyone who wrote any of those any of those letters, <laughs> all you gotta do is tell me no, baby. It's make give me a reason to tr- to prove yeah. you wrong." Uh, Local the, boy, yeah, it's a, it's a very Pittsburgh spite yeah. approach to things. Like a man, <laughs> I, I man of my own heart. Kevin Smith had this to say about the backlash against Keaton. Uh, the shouting about Michael Keaton as Batman was so fucking loud and proliferate in 1988 and 1989 that even though the internet didn't exist, the internet was still mad about it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was absolutely absurd. Time is a flat circle. Uh, he also convinced Jack Nicholson to sign on uh, by personally flying him out on a plane that was loaded with caviar and a masseuse and a personal trainer uh, just to show him the Batmobile. That's it. I mean, it's pretty yeah. cool car. Yeah. Now, given that's an oversimplification of the casting of Jack Nicholson, because there was sure, al- there was right. also the stringing along of Robin Williams that went along with that. Oh, yeah. Which sucks. Yeah. And he never he didn't work for uh, for Warner Brothers again until they would apologize to him, if I'm not mistaken. I, yeah. I forgot about that. Uh also a hell of a story. This might be the most notable thing uh, regarding the first regarding Batman 89. John Peters had an affair with Kim Basinger. Okay. All, like all throughout production. I thought Jack Nicholson was also having an affair with Kim Basinger. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it was a three-way. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Though apparently this upset Michael Keaton cuz he had the hots for Basinger. Everyone wants, to everyone, see Kim everyone wants to fuck Vicky Vale, apparently. It's weird. I mean, yeah. Uh, I'm more of a Bob, the Goon guy myself. Oh, 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 give me that Bob. <laughs> there we go. So, Basinger was married at the time. She, According to Peter, she had an abusive husband, and he stood up to her to protect her. And from that point on, they formed a friendship and eventually started sleeping together. And then she started living with him on set. The point where this gets no- really noteworthy is uh-huh. that Peters also claims that she helped him rewrite the third act. Vicky Vale was supposed to die in Batman 89. Okay. Notice that she didn't die. <laughs> I did notice that part, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. Peters did this without ever consulting Tim Burton. At oh, At any God. point. He also commissioned a 
38-foot-tall replica of the cathedral at the end of the film, the okay. one they're running the stairs up. Yeah, it's, it's a great set. It cost $100,000 to make. No doubt. And again, he did this without consulting with Tim Burton. So Jack Nicholson huh. and Kim Basinger are running up the stairs of this uh, of this cathedral, I know this story. <laughs> and they stop. And Nicholson's like, "What am I doing? Like, what 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 is even up there right now?" And so Tim Burton, in telling this story later on, he says, "Here we here here were Jack Nicholson and Kim Basinger walking up this cathedral, and halfway up, Jack turns around and says, "Why am I walking up these stairs? Where am I going?" And I had to tell him, "I don't know." It was the most frightening experience of my life. God, you want to know a little. A uh, fun little story about Kim Basinger fucking with movies. Please. So are you familiar with the, I think, 1992 movie Cold World starring Brad Pitt and Kim Basinger? I've heard of it, yes. Um, oh, didn't, she wanted, no, she wanted to fuck with a scene somehow. T- please tell me. So she plays a char- an animated character called Hollywood. Yes. Who's uh, kind of like an R-rated version of Jessica Rabbit. Okay. And this is a Ralph Bakshi movie. Yeah. Quote, unquote, because he got removed from the project. So like half, for being a curmudgeon, all, probably because Kim Basinger wanted to make it a kids' film. Like, yeah. you, you know the parts that are him and the parts that are her because the parts that are him are like filthy, rotten, disgusting pervert man. And then the things that are her are it's, very well, pure like, and innocent. Ish. They, see, they couldn't, they couldn't wash the filth off of her completely. Of course they could. Like, she wanted to recut the movie in a way that made it for kids because she wanted. She was part of some program to like bring movies. For kids in hospitals, yep. and Ralph back, she's like, "Did you see me? Like I'm perfect." <laughs> I, I've never heard this man talk. Um, <laughs> but it, like th- a major plot point is like an animator fucks his own creation. It, yeah, that's not a kids movie. It is very much not. Well, why did you sign on to this then? Like, what is happening? It's bizarre. Oh, so. Tim Burton naturally absolutely resented what was done to him yeah. at the end of this film. So when he got more creative control over Batman Returns, he made sure that Peters was only on as an executive producer and took many steps to keep him away from the set. He was not allowed anywhere near that movie. You know, there's a pretty big... I mean, they're they're both Burton movies. Yes. But one of them's, like, sat oversaturated with Burton. And I, I, I say that lovingly. Yeah. No, oh, no, but Batman Returns is so thoroughly Tim Burton yeah. that it's almost not Batman. Yeah. But also, he did such a unique, cool thing with Batman. Yeah. It, yeah, it, it's it's an iconic film, and I'll love it forever. He notably told the writer that he had with him on uh, throughout the production of, of Batman Returns, Wesley Strick, that he... We'll get into him a little bit more later. Okay. But he told him that making superhero films felt like Chinese water torture. This was on Batman or Batman Returns? This is, they were on set for Batman Returns. Okay. And so he asked him naturally, like, well, why are you making another one? He uh-huh. said, well, I learned a lot from the first one. I feel like I could do something more to make it more, you know, more me. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, make it, you know, make it a more effective film. Anyway. Interesting. The success of Batman brought offers from Warner Brothers to have Peters and Goober develop more projects for them. But Sony stepped in to hire them as co-chairmen. That's how good the performance of Batman was. Okay. Uh, Peters lasted in this position until 1991. So just two years. Right. Two-year tenure as, cha- as co-chairman of Sony. Because his t- in his two years were just rife with shenanigans and scandal. Uh, he attempted to make a film with Michael Jackson, but could not make that happen. 
he might have pitched the idea for a Sony Land theme park. Okay. Uh, he used Sony's private jet to deliver flowers to Swedish supermodel Vendela Kirsbaum, yeah. which then left Bruce Willis stranded without a ride to his next <laughs> film, which is actually one of my favorite stories out of oh, this whole Bruce, thing. No. <laughs> but left Bruce Willis hanging. <laughs> this is part of Bruce's redemption story. And, yeah, a little bit. Like We've talked some shit on Bruce we, Willis. We have. Not, and not undeservedly, but like... <laughs> He didn't deserve that. Come on, man. <laughs> Let the man go to his work. <laughs> oh, my God. Poss- but most notably, though, he was implicated in the trial of Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss. Uh, apparently, John Peters was the go-to guy at Sony if you wanted a lady for the night. I'm not familiar with that particular scandal, but uh, I mean, I'll look into it. Ho- just Google Hollywood Madam, and that's really about okay. That's about it. Yeah. Just- gotcha. Escorts. He's the guy. He's, he's, got, he's, the, he's guy. got the hookup he's, for the that. Yeah, you know, it's probably some trafficking involved. Who knows? So his time at Sony ending also brought an end to the partnership with with Goober, uh, and the relationship forever soured. I don't know the specifics of what really happened there, but Goober ended up staying on and well, with Sony until 1994, and. And to this day, uh, Peters will oscillate between either admiring or loathing uh, Gruber, be, uh, d- depending on the conversation. Right, corporate and, dickheads. Yeah, and and uh, and Peter Gruber uh, becomes quote unquote apoplectic at the mention of Peter's name. Uh, <laughs> right, corporate dickheads. Yep. On the way out of Sony, though, Peters did manage to catch wind of something big. Warner Brothers rights to the Superman films had lapsed. Okay. So at the time, uh, with Peters uh, claiming to be a lifelong Superman fan, sure, and having previously worked for Warner Brothers, uh, he knew that Warner Brothers only had paper files at the time. They had not digitized anything, uh, and they okay. and it was going to be stored in some room, in some office, in some filing cabinet that you'd have to physically go and find and dig through. And he didn't think that they had done that. And as it turned out, they had not done that. So he managed to buy the rights from the Salkins or Salkins. Uh, yeah, the people who had the rights whenever Donner was making his films. Gotcha. And then called Warner Brothers to let them know, like, hey, uh, I think I have the rights to Superman. They're like, you idiot. No, you don't. We have those. And he tells Terry Semmel, like, double check that. Oh, man. I mean, So he goes and he looks and he comes back and he's like, you do. You have you have those rights. So Peters go uh, decides to work with uh, with Warner Brothers to work with Terry Semmel to combine their the rights that they have to try and make a new project. It would be the first you know feature film attempt since the box office failure of Superman four. Okay, and they and everybody agreed the best idea was going to be to adapt the Death of Superman story, since sure. that was the hot shit at the time. My brain, my poor <laughs> poor brain. <laughs> I mean, fuck this guy. But slick move. It is a slick move. Yeah, yeah. I uh, if if that's if that's not if that's not Hollywood savvy, I don't know yeah. what is. But goddamn, what a dick move! <laughs> oh my why god! You, uh, why don't you double check those files and call me back? Yeah, we'll take another look at that and you know, give me a call in the morning. Uh, so at this point, we start getting into actual attempts to write this goddamn script. Okay, but we're gonna take a break before we really jump into those. Great. I'm the Geeky Dad. And we're the Multiverse Kids. And sometimes we review movies, shows, or books. 
But all the time, we have fun. Join us every week and um, listen to our show. And sometimes we might even have a special guest. So join us at the Geeky Dad Podcast. Thank you for sticking around with us here, everybody. Now that we've covered the basis of how John Peters is even involved with this and how the project got rolling, we're going to start rolling into the the first attempts to even write this goddamn thing. So, first attempt of the script was given to one Jonathan Lemkin, who had a reputation with within Warner for his work as a script doctor. To quote him, he, uh, he said, I think based on the action of Lethal Weapon 4, some of the more supernatural elements of The Devil's Advocate and the fantasy elements of Demolition Man, everyone felt comfortable with going forward as me for the writer of Superman Reborn. You know what? Yeah. Sure. Reasonable. Yeah. That's, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty decent resume, and I can see all of those different elements coming yeah. together for something that could be workable. Lemkin also said that he was comfortable working with Peters uh, because Peters quote, knows this genre. Look at a little side-eyed about that one. Right. I mean, uh, he has his name attached to genre he, films. He, I mean, he, and he does have his name attached to Batman. He has that yeah. going for him. But I would say that, you know, maybe he doesn't know it that well. Right. He continues about Peters. Uh, the brilliant thing about John is that he comes up with 15 ideas in any sentence. He's a constant fount of ideas and probably has more ideas in a single day than most producers have in a year. That's yeah, not always a good thing. That's not always a good thing. Like, if a fire hose is only, isn't, isn't going to give you way too much water. Right. If, you're, <laughs> right. if you're thirsty, you don't want to drink out of a fucking fire hose. You want to drink either out of a regular hose or a tap like a normal person. Yeah, go hose. I mean, regular hose, yeah. Right. Fire, yeah, no, fire hose, hose, you're getting blasted. That's going to hurt. Right, you're not going to have a face anymore. You're not going to have a face. From the very start, so immediately there was pressure from toy companies, and the studio had Lemkin in the mindset that he was shepherding this vital corporate asset. That was the, like, that was the, the, the blinders that he had on yeah, looking at this. It's not, it's not, yeah, it's not, I'm making a really unique genre film, or I'm, t- or I'm going to put a new spin on a, on an American icon. It's, I have to be responsible for the shareholders and for this corporate asset. He felt grateful that Superman is largely not a conflicted or complicated hero. He just wants to do the right thing. There's something about Superman that's great in terms of his attitude of stepping into the breach come what may. Which, fair. He is one to throw himself into situations for the greater good of others. So he's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, he I mean, he does have a big blue Boy Scout image for some reasons, but yes. that's a very surface-level and unfair reading of Superman, I and think. why we've had a lot of shitty Superman movies. Yeah. Aside from this uncomplicated view of Superman, Lemkin also immediately honed in on Superman's alien nature as something that distinctly sets him apart from Batman. I uh, recognize he had to have global stakes to keep things interesting, which... It's not a bad, not a bad mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. So he set to work using the death of Superman, world without a Superman, and Superman re- reborn arcs as inspiration. Uh, the script opened with Superman in his death throes, but instead of telling the story of his return and rise, Lemkin chose to tell the story of the birth of his successor, who comes after Lois Lane is impregnated with Superman's spirit. Fucking A. God damn it. It immediately went off the rails. Immediately. It took five minutes. I, like the first like six words that came out of your mouth was like, okay. And then it immediately crashed and burned. Let me continue. Great. This super baby matures 21 years in just three weeks and is basically a resurrected Superman. Aside from the whole my life force was magic cum thing. 
I want to say that was the original ending of Final Destination, but don't don't hold me to that. It's like not even a joke. I'm pretty sure that was the ending. What life life force impregnation? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus I think so. Christ! Uh, Lemkin tried to go darker with the story, thinking more of Burton's Batman than Lois and Clark. Uh, but in the process, the studio thought he came too close to Batman Forever territory and ultimately decided to go in a different direction. All right, good choice. I can't good say choice. I can't say that that was a bad idea. Second script attempt went to Gregory Poirier who had previously worked with Peters on Rosewood, which came out in 1997. He had his first draft in by December of 95. Poirier opted to keep things dark as well, adding uh, some more existential angst as Kal-El struggles with his being something other on Earth. Uh, he added Brainiac in as the main villain as well, and uh, Brainiac creates Doomsday, a monster with kryptonite for blood. Uh, and okay. he, those, are, those are all not bad things. Yeah. And then he brings down the Man of Steel, as happens in the Death of Superman mm-hmm. story. Superman dies, but is resurrected by another Brainiac victim named Cadmus. When he rises, he lacks any power and must wear a robotic suit until they return. Uh, his powers return through some sort of mental discipline called Finyar that I've never heard of. No, that was... Cadmus is a cloning program in the comics cadmus is a cloning program in the comics yeah. okay so he took a name and made it something else he, he like kind of sort of took inspiration so I'll, I'll give him that okay, so i would imagine that a, a young kevin smith saw that went what the, what the fuck right. <laughs> right so when kal-el regains his strength his iconic costume is replaced with a batman-esque all black one You've got the action figure right there. That is, yeah, I think a lot of people were like weirded out by the idea of Superman in a black suit, but it's like, it it happened. It was, it was in the books. It was in print. It was on a cover. Kind of a cool suit, actually. Yeah, I kind of dig that suit. Mm -hmm. But the black suit, aside from actually appearing in the comics, is largely credited to Peters. Okay. Apparently that was one of the ideas that he was trying to push behind the scenes, uh, possibly before he went power mad and started saying he can't fly or wear not gay suits or. Uh, Yeah. I don't know, whatever. Uh, studio was happier with his treatment until one fateful meeting about rewriting work with a popular indie director. Oh, no. Uh, so, so Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> I'm fucking with you. It's Kevin Smith. Okay. <laughs> so, third attempt. Oh, okay. Okay. I see yeah. where the stories collide. Yes. Yeah, so, now, gotcha, now, gotcha. We're, okay. yeah, now we're up to Smith's telling where he actually enters the story. So, the script that Smith read. Uh, and tore apart was written by Poirier and supposedly included stuff like a scene where Clark Kent tells a psychologist that he's Superman, but the shrink waves it off like, no, no, you're not Superman. You uh, he tries and tries to use that as like metaphor or some kind of psycho battle sure, or something. Right. Smith lost his fucking mind reading this and right. likened it to trying to make Jesus do dick jokes, which now I desperately want to see. Heaven <laughs> of all the people. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, you released Dogma two years after <laughs> right. this. I, I've seen what Buddy Christ looks like. <laughs> uh, I know the irony, right? Man, if Kevin had only looked at the first draft of the script. Oh, my God, like, right? I think, this, I think his head would have exploded. Yeah, yeah. We would have no Kevin Smith no, or Buddy Christ. God. In Smith's view, Poirier clearly did not get Superman so he asked he asked the uh, the studio like why didn't you just go talk to the folks from DC? Sure, like talk like they would very clearly get Superman. And his, the response he got was, "Yeah, but those are comic book guys. You can't talk to comic book guys. They don't know film." So, in the current landscape of superhero comics, yes, both DC and Marvel have tried to have input from the comic book companies, right? And it's gone 
poorly. poorly. I, I know in particular there was the spat regarding Marvel Film Studios versus Marvel TV, yeah. where there was like where they wanted to bring the Netflix series in, and then they couldn't bring the Netflix series in, and then they refused yeah. to bring the Netflix series in, and then they did away with the Netflix series, and also Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I It's it's also one of those situations where we don't know who, who was to blame versus who said what. Um, sure. It's also, we can pretty clearly point to Perlmutter, who... Oh, Ike Perlmutter, yeah. ...is a disgusting piece of shit yeah i'm sorry that so much of my money goes to him uh <laughs> but also on dc's side you have uh jeff johns i knew you were gonna say jeff johns yeah because i know i know he's he is like the comic guy that's that has yeah. had his fingers in the film side the most correct and i mean it's hard to say how much he's to blame for the Snyderverse versus you know snyder, snyder. <laughs> but that is absolutely not me saying don't involve the creators of these characters. Oh, no. Uh, no. I think it's just be mindful of, like, the input and, yeah. you know, figuring out what's actually feasible and what's not. You know, if you're making a film and you're a filmmaker, you might want this person more as a consultant rather than a, a creative uh, input type Fair. Situation. Fair. Just like when Stephen King was upset <laughs> oh, about The Shining. Yeah, he sure was. Huh? He made his own. It was real good, wasn't it? Oh, God. Anyway, as we mentioned, Lorenzo Di Bonaventura was the first person to ask Kevin Smith what he would do differently, and he had a number of ideas, gave a whole bunch of them to uh, De Bonaventura, but the only one that I could really, like, get a hold of, like, why it ha like where it came from mm -hmm. was the changing of the title from Superman Reborn to Superman Lives, because that was Smith okay. that made that happen. And his explanation for this was... You know, I always thought Fletch Lives was really cool, so I wanted God to damn. borrow from that. <laughs> Once again, everybody stayed in character. Everyone stayed in character. It's great. <laughs> sure, right. yeah, you can have it. Important to note, Peters asserts that Smith is lying about the no tights, no flights thing. Okay. However, he does acknowledge that he did say he wanted a giant spider. But he claims it was his idea to call it a Thanagarian snare beast. Bullshit. But absolutely, I absolutely call bullshit on this. And here's why. He says that he stole the idea from Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That the idea of that, of like all those legs pulling, pulling the hero toward like this horrible maw and beak and yeah. seeing Superman fight that off was going to be an amazing visual, which like, sure, sure. it could be, but that was a fucking squid. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I read that book, and I don't remember the well, in, Thanagarians being in there. No, there's no Thanagarians. It's, it's, it, the, the, the terminology is absolutely absent from the book, 100%, yeah. because, this might surprise you, fucking Hawkman isn't in any Jules Verne books. Much some critics say it was, right. yeah, some, some critics say it was Jules Verne's greatest failing as a writer to not include Hawkman or Thanagar or Snare Beasts. In Although I wouldn't books. be surprised if any of those actually had shown up. I mean, honestly, like, it's it's, it's like early sci-fi, yeah. yeah like, I mean, we were like this far from like Hollow Earth shit popping up in there. I'm sure, like, yeah. there's all kinds of bullshit that oh, yeah, early, early sci-fi is a trip, man. But for accuracy's sake, in the book Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Seas, uh, it's a school of giant squid 
that pop mm-hmm. up. And okay. in the Disney film, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, it is a single giant squid that attacks the, uh, right. the protagonist. I'm pretty Not- sure this man's never actually read a book. He just watches the movie adaptations. That is the other thing, actually. He does acknowledge he's a bad reader. He's not, he's not, he's not good at like visualizing things whenever he's reading. And like he has, he has a lot of trouble actually comprehending. Okay. That's that's... why he has people read scripts to him. As a person who mostly gets their literature that's not a comic book from audiobooks, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. That was honestly one of the few things is like, oh, okay. He explained it. It was like, okay. The director hands like looking at the ceiling thing makes a lot more sense now. It's like you have like, you have a mental thing that makes this more effective for you. Yeah. Yeah. Totally reasonable. That's the only time I'm going to use that phrase regarding John Peters. <laughs> totally reasonable. So the script that Kevin Smith wrote made some similar moves to Poirier's, but tried to be more faithful to the way these characters work in the comics, because, of course, that's how Kevin Smith right. would approach it. And we're going to walk through this script a bit here to just so you can really get a feel for, like, where this was, where this was going. Fantastic. Let's do it. Okay. So it opens on Brainiac and his robot sidekick Elron in his skull ship, brooding over their failure to track down a long-lost Kryptonian power source that could permanently sustain Brainiac, while also adding an immature but notoriously fast-growing Thanagarian snare beast to his menagerie. Brainiac's brooding is interrupted by an intercepted message from Earth broadcast from one Lex Luthor, inviting alien intelligences equal to his own brain power to come establish trade with Earth, and he happens to mention a visitor of Kryptonian descent. This triggers a thought for Brainiac, as he has Elrond hone in on the signal and get a move on. On Earth, Lex Luthor is debating Lois Lane on a primetime news program about the pros and cons of the Wortham Act, which would basically label Superman as an illegal or terroristic entity. Wortham, of course, after Frederick Wortham, the jag responsible for the comic books code authority. Yeah, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. Lane argues that the law would literally only pertain to Superman, which would make it both absurd and likely unenforceable. See also laws currently about trans people in sports. Luther makes some kind of sexist crack about Lane being eager to carry a super brat, and Lane hauls off and punches him in the face on live television. A little out of character, but okay. Yeah. The next day, the governor of Metropolis, which should be mayor, right? Metropolis is a city, what? not a state. What? Yeah. Yeah. Cat. The governor okay. of Metropolis, Caitlin Bree, is a... Is a <laughs> does that name sound familiar? It's... Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you why in a okay. second. So the, the governor of Metropolis, Caitlin Bree, is accosted by Deadshot, who then kidnaps her son. Uh, Caitlin Bree, she was Dante's ex in Clerks. Yep. Superman arrives in a flash, or blur, rather, to avoid showing him flying, to stop Deadshot. Using his X-ray vision, Superman notices that a chip in Deadshot's wrist gun features a LexCorp serial number. Supes intercepts Luther in an elevator at LexCorp HQ and accuses him of trying to use Deadshot to get the governor to pressure her to sign the Wortham Act. Uh, Luther reveals that the chip in question was designed to self-destruct after exposure to Superman's X-rays, meaning there's no evidence. Superman then muses saving the criminal justice system the trouble by dropping Luther to his death and even pulls the elevator into the sky while mulling the idea over before stopping and telling Luther, you're not worth it. Okay, Kev. Superman goes to meet Lois at the Daily Planet, where they playfully act like she doesn't know his secret identity. So in this one, okay. they're all, they've already gotten past that. They've been together for a long time. She gotcha. knows Clark is Superman. They then go out for a nice dinner, but instead of taking in some fast food, Clark opts to surprise Lois with a moonlight picnic on top of Mount Rushmore. 
Uh, he literally refers it to it as something more monumental. God damn it. They, brief- <laughs> they briefly discuss their future together. Clark expresses some hesitation of having not been enough of a man and being too super. Uh, and Lois uh, kind of echoes that. She struggles with the idea of really spending, uh, of really like settling down with Clark because he's always running off saving the world. Sure. And right about that time, he, he overhears like a plane going down in Peru or some shit. And he's just like, okay, sure. go do it. Just don't strand me over here. Right. Meanwhile, at LexCorp, Luther angrily recovers from his uh, his run-in with Superman when Brainiac shows up to answer his call. Uh, Luther, freaked the fuck out by this, six armed guards on him, which Brainiac just absorbs to help fuel his corporeal form. Okay. Instead of trying to retaliate, Luther starts to ask Brainiac what he knows about Superman. Brainiac indirectly suggests that he was responsible for the, destru- the destruction of Krypton and asserts that Kryptonians were neither powerful nor invulnerable. He mentions that a shard of rock from their homeworld would have a, debilita- a debilitating consequence for Kal-El. Luther is familiar with Kryptonite, but his millions of dollars worth of effort to synthesize it have only resulted in the invention of the Chia Pet. God damn it, Kevin. <laughs> Fucking A. I was just thinking, like, all right, this is bad. This, <laughs> and then Chia Pet. The, yeah. uh, Luther sets the Chia Pet down on his desk next to a model of a mirrored space station, which Brainiac shows interest in. Luther identifies it as one of LexCorp's long-range goals. It's designed to harness the power of the sun, creating energy that Luther plans to sell to the people of Metropolis. Uh, it also has a couple of hidden cannons that Brainiac reveals, which Luther says are meant to blast a solar hole through Superman. Brainiac then tells Luther how stupid this is as solar radiation would just make him make him more powerful despite just a second ago not seeming to grasp why kal-el is so powerful brainiac offers to accelerate luther's satellite plans so they can use it as a weapon against their kryptonian foe for this luther offers to convince the world to worship brainiac their pact made brainiac leaves to convert the space station into his shadow caster while luther immediately starts planning his double cross later clark and lois are out on an assignment as they worry about an apparent earthquake that starts happening. Clark states that this can't be right, because he just checked the crustal plates last week, and they were fine. Right. You might notice that crustal plates is probably not an accurate (laughs) geological term. Uh, The Tremors are actually coming from Doomsday, who has been released from Brainiac's menagerie. Superman is dragged into battle with the Behemoth and manages to hold his own despite a shit ton of collateral damage until the Shadowcaster moves into place and blocks out the sun, weakening the Man of Tomorrow. Doomsday wins the fight, leaving Superman to die in the arms of Lois Lane. Metropolis mourns its fallen hero. After Lois says a few words, the television feeds of the city are hijacked, cutting to static that clears to reveal the Bat Signal. I was like, he's going to bring Batman into He's this. absolutely going to bring... It's Kevin Smith. He's going to bring Batman into this. Come on. <laughs> Batman appears live from the Batcave to offer condolences and apologizing for not being there so uh, to help the city as the Shadowcaster's darkness has also impacted Gotham, meaning that his life is just constant criminal punching right now. Uh, this might also be right. a good time to remember that in DC canon, Gotham is in New Jersey and Metropolis is in Delaware, so Batman really wouldn't have to go that far to help with shit there. Someone please write the movie of why Batman couldn't Wait, do this. Is that true? Yeah, I'm pretty Go- sure. Gotham's in... Gotham's in Jersey. That's so weird. I always assumed it was in the Chicago area. No, I mean, it's modeled after Chicago architectur- mm. ar- architecturally, and sometimes New York architecturally. Yeah. But no, it canonically, geographically, I'm pretty sure it's in Jersey. That explains so much. It, honestly. <laughs> and where's um, Metropolis? Delaware. I'm like 90, <gasps> I'm like 90% sure about that. I've always wondered this, so, like, yeah, okay. 
If I'm wrong, tell me. Somebody tell me, and I'll, I'll issue a correction at some point. Luther uses the funeral proceedings as an opportunity to reveal Brainiac to the populace, claiming that Superman was not meant to save humanity, but to serve as the herald for Brainiac and prepare the Earth for first contact with extraterrestrial life. Brainiac tells the world that his Shadowcaster has saved Earth from a roving armada of marauding doomsdays, and that while it's in use, LexCorp will provide everyone with affordable power. Quote-unquote, affordable. Uh, the Armada is, of course, bullshit, and the, pr- and the ships that people see in the sky are actually projections coming from Brainiac's skull ship. Meanwhile, something stirs in the Fortress of Solitude, powering up and causing Superman's body to teleport there from Metropolis. This something is the Eradicator, who revives a fallen Kal-El to reveal several things. First, the Eradicator can change shape to meet various needs, and first served as baby Kal-El's ship to bring him to Earth. Alright, well, I hate that. Kal-El ponders whether the Eradicator was able to watch while he and Lois fucked because Kevin Smith wrote this. God damn it. Second, his powers are currently down, Superman's, and can only be brought back by exposure to yellow solar radiation. Uh, Third, they should probably go get that radiation somewhere the fuck else because Brainiac's presence here makes Earth a really unchilled place to be. Uh, Superman refuses to leave the people of Earth, especially Lois, at the whims of Brainiac and demands to go fight him right the fuck now. And fourth, while Kal-El cannot be fully killed so long as Eradicator exists, Eradicator is also the Kryptonian perpetual battery that Brainiac needs to basically make himself eternal. Of course. Despite all the warnings in danger, Kal-El demands that they go back to fight Brainiac. Instead, Eradicator tries to help him investigate the Shadowcaster to see if they can unblock the sun. Barring that, he asserts Kal-El should find another planet and forego his attachment to these lesser Earthlings. Several things happen at roughly the same time. Brainiac and Elrond go to the Fortress of Solitude, escorted by General Darris and several other sh- uh, soldiers, to try and find the Eradicator. On the way, they're confronted by a couple of polar bears, which Brainiac just flat-out murders. <laughs> or at least one of them, because as Kevin Smith stated, they didn't want to piss off the PETA people. Uh, also, Rick Darris, you might recognize, is the weightlifting guy from Clerks, who comes in and sasses uh, either Dante or Randall. I forget which one, but... Yeah, yeah, Yeah. okay. Yeah, Kevin just continuing to recycle his old characters for the script. Brainiac discovers some of the regenerative goop Eradicator used to revive Superman, confirming his suspicions that Eradicator had been there to begin with. However, he begins to to deteriorate at a faster rate than before, worrying Elrond, who insists they return to LexCorp and plug him back into his charging station because the Fortress of Solitude doesn't have USB-C. When they do return to his charging port aboard his grounded skull ship, it's revealed that he has been drawing power directly from the Earth's core to sustain himself. Lois and Jimmy Olsen go to LexCorp to interview, quote-unquote, Luther, but actually snoop around and figure out his evil plan. Right. Uh, Luther tells Lane that she needs to stop with her seditious anti-Brainiac talk, telling her that Brainiac is the only thing keeping the planet safe from the Armada. When she continues to probe him to figure out what's really... Uh, what's really going on and what he's truly on about, he declares his allegiance by ripping his shirt open Superman style to reveal a Maniac for Brainiac t-shirt. Fucking hell. Damn it. (laughs) I want one. Uh, Honestly? Yeah, I'd wear that. Lois and Jimmy manage to get a brief moment alone in Lex's office, during which time they discover the truth of his plans with Brainiac. Uh, Jimmy takes pictures and saves everything to a drive, but Luther discovers they've gotten into his computer and orders the guards to hunt them down. They flee by way of the balcony. Superman, able to fly into space thanks to Eradicator acting as a one-man ship, makes his way 
to the Shadowcaster, and he has Eradicator uh, perform an X-ray scan on it, revealing a Lextech 37 logo within. Uh, 37, you might note, is the number of dicks sucked in Clerks. Uh, Superman is shocked. Shocked! Uh, but then is actually shocked as Brainiac's hidden anti-technology fries Eradicator's systems, causing them to plummet toward Earth. Brainiac is able to detect the Eradicator's descent through the atmosphere, but loses them when they reach the Earth's surface, uh, because Eradicator managed to recover power in the nick of time, preventing a catastrophe and allowing them to cloak their position, because convenience. Eradicator tries to grasp Kal-El's love of Lois and fondness of humanity, but only ends up more confused because robot. <laughs> right. A sudden explosion nearby leads the powerless Superman and Eradicator to a burning apartment building, Superman does not hesitate to rush in and save the remaining residents stuck inside, despite his lack of powers and risk to his physical well-being. Eradicator is flabbergasted. When Superman refuses to leave the rest of the tenants to die, Eradicator reforms into a suit of armor, an exosuit that recreates Superman's powers while he heals. Why he didn't do that Im immediately is a question that is actually written into the script. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when the rescued people ask who this armored masked hero is, he simply says, just tell them I'm back. Okay. While Jimmy gets away, Lois is taken captive by Luther and brought to Brainiac's skull ship. Brainiac comes to realize Lois's love for Superman and that he could have just used her as a bargaining chip to get the Eradicator instead of partnering with, quote, the insufferable Lex Luthor of Earth. <laughs> But now it's too late. Now that Brainiac and Luther must face the reality that Superman lives, roll credits, uh, Brainiac releases the Thanagarian snare beast into Earth's atmosphere. Brainiac drops all pretense of benevolence and starts attacking Earth from his skull ship, announcing his turn via massive hologram of his face in the sky, which Superman in his eradicator armor immediately flies through in pursuit. Finally confronted with the goal of his pursuits, Brainiac gets caught monologuing and reveals that Eradicator could simply have destroyed the Shadowcaster with a simple binary synapse. Eradicator says, LOL, IDIOT, and yeets himself into space, firing off a binary synapse near the Shadowcaster, sacrificing himself, I guess, and destroying the station. The sun, unblocked, restores Superman's true power, but he faces one last challenge. Brainiac has absorbed and or merged with the now humongous Thanagarian Snare Beast, and Luther gets the fuck out of Dodge. Big fight ensues. Superman somehow punches Brainiac out of the Thanagarian Snare Beast and then punches right through Brainiac's spine. Superman and Lois reunite. Superman vows to be more man than super, and Jimmy Olsen's evidence puts Lex Luthor behind bars. The end. What are your thoughts on that script there, Jack? It's dumb. <laughs> I will say that I like it more than the first draft. I also like it more than the first draft, but it is also dumb. It's also extremely exposition heavy it's in the dialogue. very much that I've heard of worse. Oh, yeah. First draft. Like, th if I had been given this script, I'm like, all right, here's the starting point. I'm like, okay, there's some stuff in here I can mine. There's other stuff I would get rid of entirely. Jack, of course we've seen worse. We saw the Emoji movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, worst proposals. <laughs> fair. Fair. Um, sorry. Treatments, outlines. <laughs> but I'm also not surprised that Burton read this and tossed it out entirely. Which we're about to really get to, at least, that's where we're going to start the next episode. Okay. I don't know if I mentioned already, but this is going to be a two-parter. So the studio was happy with, with Smith's script, and they were ready to move forward with, pr with production. Some details that I found regarding what this would have looked like mm -hmm. before 
Tim Burton came on. Much like the View Askew Universe characters that he wrote into the script, Smith planned to cast a bunch of his buddies and previous collaborators. Can, can you guess? Affleck. As Superman. Yeah. Yep. Keep going. See who, see who else you can get. <sighs> okay. Muse is Jimmy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Jason Muse is Jimmy Olsen. Right, two for two. Two for two. He hasn't done Dogma yet. No, no. This is just as Chasing Amy is coming Shit, out. What the What the hell was the name of the actress who played Amy? Joey Lauren Adams? Yeah. Yeah. No. Her is Lois. No? Okay. No. Was somebody cast as Lois? Somebody was cast as Lois. Or he would have cast somebody right, as Lois. Right, right, right. I don't know that one. Uh, Linda Fiorentino. Which one? Did, who did she play? Uh, I think she was in Clerks, if I'm not mistaken. She was um, Bethany in Dogma. That was it. So future collaborator in that case, my mistake. That was the lead. That was she would have been. Yeah, she yeah she was the lead. Okay, in Dogma. that's why I was like, wait, no, he hadn't done Dogma yet because I was thinking, oh, she would have been great, Lois. No, that it was her. Okay, yeah. Um, so you were right, actually. You're three. For, we'll, call, we'll call you three for three. I'm gonna say Rickman would have been a great Luther. I think he could have. I agree, but no. This one, this one actually is. Uh, this is the exception to the rule. This is not one of his previous collaborators. Okay. This is big name, but not, but not somebody that Smith had previously worked with. Gosh, I'm not sure. We've mentioned his name in this episode. Kevin Costner. N- no. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, Jack Nicholson. Oh, that would have been terrible. It'd been weird. Yeah, I mean, like, not that he couldn't have. No, it would have been bad. I don't think that role suits him. No. And what about Brainiac? That is the last one that I have a casting for. Is is he uh, an askew? Yes. Okay. I want O'Halloran, but like he would be I'll real say, bad I'll, at I'll it. say that it's not a clerk. Okay. Uh, Jason, what's his fuck? Um, fuck, what's Jason's you, last you, name? You know, you know it. Jason Rocketship. <laughs> Isn't his son named like Rocket? Oh, his daughter's named Pilot Inspector. Uh, it's worse. <laughs> it's worse, uh, especially because the C in Inspector is actually a K. The way he spelled it. It's Jason Lee. That's yeah. Yes, yeah Jason. Yeah, he yeah, was going to yeah, cast okay. Jason Lee as Brainiac. Uh, none of this happened, obviously. It did better than I thought it was going to. Yeah. No, you huh. got three for five. Yeah. Before Tim Burton was offered the director's chair, it was offered to Robert Rodriguez. Uh, okay. Um, no? <laughs> <laughs> Can you elaborate on that no? Because honestly, I don't hate the idea of them working together on this goofy-ass script. But... I haven't, so I haven't watched a whole lot of Robert Rodriguez's films in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I did see El Mariachi, which I, I, you know, I really enjoyed. But I would not say that he has a lot of character depth in his movies. Okay. Do you think this script had a lot of character depth? I think it... <laughs> the movie needed somebody to pull that out of the fair, script. Fair. I think the action scenes would have been dope. Probably, yeah. R- Rodriguez does do a good action scene. And uh, Mr. White being Antonio Banderas was an interesting choice. <laughs> That's the chief. <laughs> um, no, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think it would uh, uh, have gone super well. Okay. Uh, well, Rodriguez did really like the script. Uh, but he was so thoroughly burnt out at the time that there was no way he felt he could do it. Do you know what he had done at that job? So he he had just finished from dusk till dawn, if I'm not if okay. I'm not mistaken. So he had wrapped that and had to f- do post production on that and then release that. 
I had something else. I, I'm, I'm forgetting what it was that had also released at that time. He also had a book come out, and his first child was born. So he was a little busy. He is a little busy. Yeah. I wonder if it so, was his book on filmmaking. I, pr- I think it was. Very good book, but not for filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> like, very interesting book. It's so heavily dated at this point that it's fairly irrelevant. Sure. Yeah, I, 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 can, I can see how that would be the case. Because of those things, he opted to just take a break from filmmaking for a little bit, uh, which lasted until he did The Faculty, which came out in 1998. Oh, I thought he did The Faculty. Yeah, me too. Okay. The studio's second choice, Tim Burton, did agree to come on, and that is where we're going to pick up for the next episode. Astounding. What a bunch of people <laughs> gathered in a room doing bad decisions. It. So I would qualify everything we've gone through so far as a lot. Yeah. It's really just setting the stage. That's really disconcerting. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm like, what could go wrong? What could go worse than has already happened? Oh, my God, man. Uh, you, I mean, you we haven't even gotten John Peters to interact with anybody that's oh, not a God. writer at this point. So, it, And it's rough that, like, there are a lot of individuals in this story that I do like their work. Yeah. But they are where they shouldn't be. It kind of feels that way, but honestly, I, I'm this might be and this might be telegraphing things a little bit, but uh, I, I've come to the point where I kind of wish this movie had happened. And I'll get into a little bit more about why in the next episode because that's where it's going to be relevant. But it could have been it, it. It might not have been good. It, it would have been fucking wild and interesting though. I mean, I haven't liked a Superman movie since before I was born. Sure, so. And maybe because they haven't really released a good Superman movie since before either of us were born. Yeah. Uh, I, w- I will admit, I did enjoy Superman Returns whenever it first came out. But there were aspects I, I enjoyed. I have not gone back and watched it since then, though. No. And I'm I'm kind of curious, too. Especially after having done all this fucking research. I mean, uh, believing that Kevin Spacey's Lex Luthor's a megalomaniac is way more believable now. Uh, it's entirely too believable. Um, uh, it's especially considering he's being directed by Brian Singer. Oh, fuck. <laughs> How did I forget that? Um, I mean, I was going to remind you in the next episode. So I, I do like the condom suit. The condom suit. <laughs> like, I say that jokingly, but I actually do kind of like the suit. Yeah, no, I, 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 did, I did like the suit as um, well. Thank you all for listening to part one of our, of our dive into Superman Lives. Uh, if you have not already, please uh, rate and review the show everywhere you possibly can. Uh, we are on iTunes. We're on uh, we're on Spotify. We're on Good Pods, Podchaser, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Those ratings and reviews really go a long way to helping people discover us and uh, help us get further up in search rankings and in various other ratings. Recently on Good Pods, we had reacclaimed our number one spot in film and television and also got... Ooh. Real fucking high up in the overall yeah. show, like top 100 list on Good Pods. I think we got as high as number three. Yeah, thank you, idiots. Yeah, you guys are great. Like, I'm blown the fuck away. Thank you for the response to what we've been doing with season two so far. I, we've got some new twists and turns coming up. We do well. have some new twists and turns coming up. This, w- I mean, this episode will be kind of the start of that since yeah. this is going to be a two part uh, second unit episode. Uh, the episode coming up after this one, we're going to start toying with the format a little bit mm-hmm. uh, and making it almost a weekly podcast so yeah just about just about yeah, yeah. well if in normal circumstances we'll have a week off per month but yeah. uh but 
it should still work out with the same way production wise for yeah. us, I think. So we're going to give that a shot. We hope you guys respond well to it. We'll be sure to ask what you're thinking about it. Also, check out our merch as Jack is so help, uh, helpfully showing the stream right now uh, with that great baseball drazzled T-shirt. You can look us up on Redbubble or go directly to our Twitter to check all that stuff out or whatever other social media we've mentioned it on. More designs are coming. um, More designs are coming. There are three currently and uh, plenty more in the works. We hope you enjoy all of them as much as we have. Uh, Speaking of our social media as well, please follow us there on Twitter at DerazzledPod, on Facebook at DerazzledPodcast, on Instagram at Derazzled underscore podcast, and TikTok at DultBoy underscore Jack. Correct. Slowly building a, a fan base there. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, we've been getting some love on TikTok, which is pretty cool. And on YouTube, actually. Yeah. So if you check out our YouTube, which I think is just Derazzled, or is it Derazzled yeah. Podcast? I can't remember. I think it's just Derazzled. It might be just be Derazzled. Search Derazzled on YouTube if you do podcast stuff on YouTube. Uh, so, yeah. That, I think that wraps it up for t- for everything there. I would like to make everyone aware that if you do search for Derazzled, the only other thing that does pop up is the song from Tron Legacy Derez, Derez, yeah, we did. I did which, notice that Derez does pop up pretty prolifically. You can also listen to that; it's a pretty sweet. It's pretty score. Cool. Yeah, um, I'm not mad about Daft it. Punk, R.I.P. Um, <laughs> uh, other ones. than that, um, scenes at the next one. Well, we'll be sure to razzle you.